Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Inside LBUSD, the Laguna Beach Unified School District podcast. Just a reminder that next week marks the end of the first semester, so hopefully students are preparing for finals on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And of course, the following two weeks, we will be off for winter break. For this final podcast episode of 2021, Dr. Valoria returns with a wonderful conversation with four very special guests around the topic of rhetorical listening. And I think you guys will really enjoy this one. And now, the inside scoop with Dr. Jason Valoria. I am Jason Valoria, I'm the superintendent of schools, and today I'm joined by Don Honeycutt, amazing English teacher at Laguna Beach High School, Mia LePage, Laguna Beach High School 12th grade student, Dr. Kyle Jensen, who is a professor of English and director of writing programs at Arizona State University. He's the author or co-editor of six books, including the forthcoming co-authored book with Krista Ratcliffe, entitled Rhetorical Listening in Action, a Concept-Tactic Approach. Dr. Ratcliffe is the foundation professor and chair of the Department of English at ASU and the author of Rhetorical Listening, Identification, Gender, and Whiteness. Today's topic is somewhat unique, and we're talking about listening. Uh, This is something we probably do all day long, hopefully most of us do. We listen to music or TV or participate in conversations with one another, a child, a spouse, a student. But as we think about how we actually listen, it brings up some very interesting points of discussion. What were we taught about listening when we were younger? Who teaches us how to listen? And how has this evolved over time? So today, we're gonna explore the deeper understanding of rhetorical listening and how what we see in our culture has overtaken what we hear as more important. So with that, Dr. Ratcliffe, Krista, can you tell us a little bit about what rhetorical listening is? Sure. Rhetorical listening is simply a theory and a set of tactics for how to listen across differences. It came out of a classroom moment because students were discussing race and um, each sort of quote side was spouting what they believed and very vehemently, but they weren't really listening to one another. And that led me on my path to investigate listening in the history of, of rhetoric and then listening as you mentioned as a topic for teaching in the the 20th and 21st century Um, the four classical rhetorical arts reading writing speaking and listening we've all had classes in reading or literature we've all had classes in writing we've all had classes in speech but have you ever taken a class in listening i bet the answer is no and so what i came up with was a kind of a simple set of moves which will help us listen people with whom we disagree. So basically, assume an open stance. Secondly, lay competing claims and cultural logic side by side. So instead of grasping onto one, map them all out in front of you. Um, Third, pause and consider all of them and analyze them and and see where it might lead you. Uh, The fourth step is then to reflect on what is heard in order to promote a deeper understanding of yourself, but also of other people. And then finally, um, because rhetorical listening is not just about thinking and understanding, it's about action. The final step of rhetorical listening is to design when possible, win-win solutions. And by win-win, I don't mean everybody gets everything everybody wants. It simply means that uh, participants feel as if their stakes have been heard and considered and and factored into uh, decisions that have been made. So Kyle, she makes it sound really easy. So I know this is not an easy thing to do. So can you talk just a little bit about how you go about teaching this and, and what are the ways by which we as uh, teachers and students could be better at rhetorical listening? Yeah, it's it's definitely not easy. And it's definitely not easy um, in this particular political, civic, you know, epidemiological climate um, seems that, you know, of late things are becoming increasingly embattled and and increasingly tense. So how do you, how do you teach it? Um, It's a really good question. Um, I think probably the first step that we always try to emphasize um, is to understand what kinds of assumptions we bring to bear in any given listening situation. So how we listen will depend on who our audience is. Um, But one thing's 
seems to be pretty um, pretty consistent across the case is that there's an assumption that listening is kind of like a light switch. Like if you're listening, you flip the light switch on and you're ready and you're prepared and you're actively communicating that you're listening. Um, and that if you're not listening, you flip the switch off and that's that. Uh, you're, you're just shut down and um, Chris and my um, current research is showing, in fact, that there are different capacities of listening, uh, that in fact, that there are nine different capacities of listening. And in order to take a kind of affirmative, affirmative stance toward listening to help people see that the way that they come into any situation of communication um, uniquely, they might exhibit a kind of tendency toward one of these or several of these nine capacities. So, you know, for instance, if you tend to make connections uh, across different kinds of contexts and you're listening for different kinds of connections, uh, we have, you know, friends that, that do this really well and do it really actively, then you might be an associational listener. Um, if you're a person, as Chris mentioned, it's, you know, when you're trying to do rhetorical listening and you lay out all of the different perspectives side by side without giving privilege to one or another, and you do that kind of naturally, um, you might be a listener who suspends really well. And so what we're trying to do now is help educate not only students, but parents and other educators as well to get out of the mindset of thinking about listening as a binary activity of an on-off switch and start to think about it as a, a dimensional activity where you have these kind of unique attributes that you can activate and implement. And even if it doesn't necessarily come naturally, you can practice them and get better at them so that doesn't matter where you are, what situation you find yourself in, whom you happen to be interacting with, uh, you can identify those capacities in other people and adjust your communication so that you can actually uh, meet them where they are, which is a really powerful outcome of rhetorical listening. Thank you. Don, I know you have a follow-up question. I do. Um, as I So what kind of listening was I doing just then when all I could think about was, I'm listening to what you're saying because I hang on your every word and you know that. Um, but at the outset, I wanted from the experts to hear a definition of rhetorical or rhetoric. I mean, I know what it means in terms of writing, but in terms of listening, just for the average person out there, I'd like to hear like a definition of that. So what kind of listening was I just doing then when all I could think of my head was I want to hear a definition of rhetorical from Kyle. Is that suspension? Uh, I think it's probably association oh, okay. to be perfectly honest with you. I mean, I think that, you know, what you're trying to do is you're trying to make connections across different kinds of contexts. Right. And so, you know, right now what we're going to do then, and we're going to shift our listening a little bit and we're going to shift to focus. And so we're going to take, you know, that definition that you're asking for, and we're going to give a very precise definition. And just to be perfectly clear, there are, you know, competing definitions of rhetoric. I think Chris and I probably have competing definitions of rhetoric. Right. My, my own hap happens to be, you know, the use of symbolic means to, you know, communicate, to uh, move bodies to action in particular kinds of ways. Um, I happen to privilege that kind of definition because it doesn't tend to overemphasize rhetoric's ethical dimensions, even though I do think rhetoric can be extremely ethical. And I like the kind of embodied uh, granular quality of it, like Ultimately, I think rhetoric is about moving bodies and, and persuading them to do different kinds of things in different kinds of ways. Um, but Chris, what do you think? What kind of definition would you implement for this particular situation? What I tell students is rhetoric is basically how we use language and how language uses us to affect how we think and how we act. So we use language purposely to get other people to do things, but we're all also born into language and socialized by it. And so whether it's at school, at church, in the family, in our social groups or whatever, things are named in certain ways, things are reasoned about in certain ways, and we grow up thinking this is the normal way of thinking. And um, that's why it becomes important for rhetorical listening to talk not just about claims, here's what I think about the topic, but also what cultural logic is somebody functioning from? Mm -hmm. um, Thank you. All right, Don. You've had a chance to have Kyle in your classroom. Yes. Mia as well has been has been there. So, what have you learned uh, around rhetorical listening and its implications for students in your classroom? What I think was fascinating about what Kyle did in my classroom was he took, you know, a very basic concept: what is the best late night cereal, 
And from there, we launched into this huge discussion and the kids were discussing and going back and forth and arguing and listening. And then he proceeded to give language to something that, and this is what I loved, and I took a ton of notes, um, he gave language to the way that we listen. And it's kind of like the stages of grief, you know, the 12 stages of grief. You, It helps normalize your experience or it helps contextualize your experience. Like, okay, I'm feeling angry right now and that's normal and the next thing's gonna be this. I think what Kyle did for the students was, so brilliantly, gave language to something that we naturally do, but we can't, we didn't, I didn't really have the language to explain how I was listening. Even when I was describing a situation to him, he pointed out that I was kind of listening in a suspended, you know, in a suspended fashion. So I wasn't really listening and absorbing, I was listening and waiting to insert my thoughts. I had a student that was trying to explain something about the way she processes information, and she gave up. Remember this, mm-hmm. Doctor? Yeah, she gave up. She's like, "Oh, forget it. Never mind." And what you did with that? It was like one of those moments where he was able to say, "This is what you do." What was it that you said? We talked about the the potential of listening from a persevering perspective, and that I would model that for her effectively. And in doing that, she I think found the confidence to kind of continue on with it, and then to hear herself kind of persevere uh, through uh, the process of making the argument and the description. So yeah, I think that is that does that square with your yeah memory? completely. It was just one of those moments where she gave up, and what she needed to work on was perseverance in talking and expressing her thoughts. So it was just one of those beautiful moments where you gave her language for something that she typically does that she couldn't understand before. She even said, I don't know why I just, I just get lost in my own thoughts and I get confused and I just shut down. And when you said to her, you need to persevere, you need to keep going. I could just see it in her face. I don't know if you saw it in her face, just this huge epiphany of, oh, I need to stick with it a little bit longer. So I think you gave my students language for, that was just invaluable. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, one of the, I, after we, I came out and visited Laguna, I met with Chris immediately because, you know, we're actively conducting this research and building, you know, new opportunities and new, new ways of measuring, you know, different listening capacities. And the thing that really stuck with me in, in one of your classes was the student who you said hadn't spoken hardly at all throughout the year yeah. and then raised his hand mm-hmm. in the process of the conversation and said, I think I have a really difficult time suspending long enough to hear perspectives that are different than our own. And I, right. I, I, I probably, I, I don't have a, we're on radio obviously. So I don't have, you can't tell if I have a poker face or not. I don't have any chill when it comes to these kind of, I think I just, my mouth flew open and I was so overwhelmed um, by the candor uh, and the level of self-reflection. And then when you told me that that student um, had not spoken up during the year, I just thought to myself, like, you know, I said to Chris, this is this is precisely why a listening education is so important. And not just, you know, we, we obviously deal in post-secondary. We, this happened to be in, in a high school classroom. But as you said, it gives students a vocabulary for naming something that might be bothering them, but they don't really know how to take the next step with it. And if you can just simply furnish the vocabulary, it can accelerate their learning and their reflective capacities in immeasurable ways. And it doesn't take much. It just takes a little bit of time and a little bit of education, and then they're off to the races. And I think everybody walks away from that exchange, as Chris said, feeling like that's a win-win. That's a win for me as a teacher, because I think I helped the student find their voice today. It's a win for the student because they say, well, not only did I feel heard in this particular moment, but I now how, know how to share my voice moving forward. And then it becomes a win for the culture of the classroom and the school because now people are willing to take risks and to communicate with one another in a way that perhaps they might not have felt confident about before. And that's when students start teaching students and students start teaching teachers and vice versa and all the way around so that everybody is learning from one another at the highest level because they can be heard. And I think that's what was fascinating. And that's why I invited Mia here today is because the students were grasping what you were saying better than I was at 56 years old. 
I've developed some bad habits, especially in terms of listening. So I was struggling with what are my strengths as a listener and what are my weaknesses as we go through the capacities. And Mia so beautifully talked about a situation and then she talked about how she had to, I mean, I'll let you talk, Mia, because, but I mean, it was just, she understood the concept and the, the complexity of the concept way better than I did. And it just goes to show you that the sooner we start this, my goodness, the changes that can be made in education. So Mia, talk a little bit about your experience. Um, well, not only did I learn a lot about myself in that talk, but I liked seeing all the other students kind of realize things about themselves as well while I was doing it. Because I knew it was important for not only me, but for everybody else in the classroom to grasp it. And I remember going home and telling everybody that I could about what I learned about myself and how everybody was learning new things about themselves and how we all did apply it to our different circumstances and situations. Like a fight I had, all I was doing was just not even acknowledging that they were telling me what I had to do be to like help me out in the end of the day because I had a lot of tardies and everything, and he knew I had to get out of that bed, he knew I had to get to school, but I just didn't want to listen, and I knew that his harsh words were for my well-being, and it took that, in that class, listening to you speak, it took that to make me realize that different perspective on not everything um, bad, I guess, that people say are meant for the bad, it's meant to help me out in the end game which I really do appreciate. And I liked um, starting out with the cereal and learning all that about, and then the different questions and going in the different, I liked like the hands-on kind of experience about it. it, really engaged kids definitely a lot more and it made them comfortable enough to speak. And I, I really liked that about that lecture. Yeah, I was telling my colleagues that it, you know, our periods are an hour and 45 minutes long and you had them riveted for an hour and 45 minutes. I was so jealous. At the end of that, they were right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, mean. I guess the secrets in the cereal. I mean, like, I y'all are gonna laugh, but last night I had to make a late night trip for my wife to go pick up some cinnamon toast crunch. I mean, no, like, not cinnamon funny, toast crunch. This is the thing about, we talked about this. I know. I look. I'm trying to help her, Don. I don't know what to tell you, but you know, this is this is. I I first learned about rhetorical listening when I was a graduate student, and this one, Chris is you know, first, first book came out on rhetorical listening and it's this just phenomenon. It changed the way field, the field was talking about rhetoric and, and, and listening as it related to rhetoric. And the thing that kind of like grounded me in that book, I, I, I literally have a, a very vivid memory of what it felt like to sit down and read it for the first time was like, this, this touches me, my intellectual, interest it it affects the way i think about how i interact with others at a like personal level does that make sense and it's so obviously nimble it can go anywhere you can talk about something as trivial as what is the best late night cereal and something as important as how do we have productive conversations about race mm -hmm. in the contemporary historical moment and that's the genius of rhetorical listening um, it's, it's incredibly nimble. It, it hits every aspect of our lives. And the thing that I've learned most from Chris and is y'all, I appreciate the, the kindness and the compliments of, of, of saying that you enjoyed the class that I taught. I'm being in a classroom with Chris. It's, it's just a next level kind of experience. And one of the things that I've learned from her is that everything that we do in the classroom needs to affirm with confidence what students can already do that we need to look at students and say you have this extraordinarily high ceiling these abilities that you don't maybe you don't know how to name them yet maybe you do it already naturally really well but we can help you elevate it to a whole nother level and she has you know talked with me in that way and has elevated my research i've seen her do it with students as well and it's something that i'm modeling when i come and talk with y'all is this this confidence that we have the ability and the tools that we we need at our disposal it's simply a matter of working on them in a focused way and in a generous way 
uh, and in a way that installs hope and confidence and encourages uh, so that we can take these steps together because that's what a, a win-win looks like. It, it's everybody walking away together, feeling like they were not only heard, but feel like we can take another step together in good faith uh, if we need to. So Chris, Sorry, talk, Chris we're, talk, we're talking about you, Chris, as if you're not here. Right. I was going to say, Chris, you're, you're on screen. So maybe talk a little bit about what advice you have uh, for teachers um, and how they might be able to you know, bring their students along in this area in particular. It, it, it is complicated, I recognize. But uh, as uh, Don so eloquently put it, Kyle had you know, her class riveted for an hour and 45 minutes. So how do we go about having these conversations in our classrooms and how do we maybe uh, expand upon that later around how we have those conversations at home uh, you know, with our, with our students? Uh, being a parent, I'd love to know how to listen to my teenager maybe a little better. Oh, if there were only an easy answer, right? Um, one of the things we say in our new book is that uh, uh, basically listening is one way to address rhetorical problems. And um, if there were an easy way to do it, human history would have unfolded very differently. There's not. So, uh, But that said, in the classroom, I think it's really important to bring it down to um, uh, to begin with, whether it's a clip from a TV show where people are having an argument, um, whether it's something in a reading that you've done where there uh, is a strong stance, um, to ask students not do they agree or disagree, I don't go there to begin with. I say, why might somebody believe this, right? Why might somebody believe this? Who benefits from this? And, and who, you know, who doesn't benefit? And um, uh, basically what I'm doing is introducing them to cultural logics. So I'll talk to students and say, look, if you're at, um, at a party and uh, uh, somebody says something and you think, oh, that sounds like a Packer fan, right? How do you know that? Well, it's not just because one person thinks that, but it's because a lot of people have certain ideas about Brett Favre, right? So, so uh, um, there's a way of thinking that's collective, not just individual. And if we can get students to see that an argument on a sitcom or an argument in a, a, an assigned essay um, is an individual person's voice, yes, and that's important to honor, but it's also part of a larger group collective thinking then you can kind of map out what that larger group thinking is. And so a real easy way to do it is with politics, right? Although I may not want to do that in the classroom, but um, um, it can be done with short stories and the different characters who are, are functioning from different ways. They serve as representatives of different ways of thinking about whatever the issue is at hand. So I always try to start there and have students build the cultural logics and analyze them. what would it who would benefit and why, and what are the stakes here? And then, then they can move to saying agree or disagree and why and why not. But it's, it's from a perspective of generosity, <laughs> you know, being a willingness to listen. Thank you. So Mia, going back to kind of the student perspective a little bit, how did you explain this to your fellow classmates um, who may not have been sitting in and, and, you know, what was the uh, key takeaways that you tried to leave them with when you were trying to explain that? Well, I did write down, we wrote down all the all the nine, and I kind of just, um, I went to one of my classmates that wasn't there that day, and we went through all of them individually and kind of went through how he felt like he placed himself in those. And I even told him about my situation and everything, and um, he was the one I actually was fighting with, so it kind of worked out. And he kind of understood that um, just different things about himself, which I really liked to learn about him personally, because I always want to find ways to learn more about people close to me and everything. And even people who didn't or aren't in creative writing and didn't hear the lecture, all my friends, I'm like, okay, everybody sit down. We're going to go through this piece of paper and we're going to learn everything, your strength and weaknesses with listening, because I think it's going to help us out for the better because, um, my friends, they're not the best at listening. So I really wanted to just like crack it in there for them. So I'm just like, um, I was just hoping that they actually took away because I can't obviously um, 
explain it as well <laughs> with um, the lack of research that I've done. <laughs> but um, I really hope that they took away something from what I had to say and maybe they went to their parents and they spread the word and they helped out with their other friends and everything. So, yeah. Great point. Don, what do you think from a teacher's perspective, um, putting this into action, what can we do as educators to help support our students through this learning process? Well, the experience was just completely eye-opening to me in that the students are ready to have these discussions. They really are. I think, to be honest, educators are afraid to allow these discussions to happen in the classroom, and Krista's nodding her head. I know we're on a podcast, you can't see that, but... And I'm going to be honest, I'm afraid sometimes to approach these conversations because I don't feel skilled enough to navigate the differences of opinions or the feelings that might happen or, you know what I mean? So I think the students are mature and ready and want to have these conversations and want to be listened to. Sometimes the adults in the room are the ones that don't have the skill level or are afraid or what if this gets out of control? What if somebody says something that's inappropriate or hurt somebody's feelings how do we navigate that and so for me as an educator I just really want to get better at this because this is everything I mean whether we're talking about literature whether we're talking about a math concept or whether we're talking about history something that happened in you know I I just think it's really really important and I think the students to engage them in in 21st century learning we really have to listen to them. I think that's where we need to go. They, and I, you know this, students guide where we go in my classroom many, much of the time, and so I wanna continue down that path. But I just realized, as we were taking notes, our notes are this, I mean, I'm coming to it with the same knowledge that Mia has. We're both, we both took notes. We, it's all new to me, so that to me was, eye-opening. I need to get better at this as an educator so that we can have these conversations so that I can engage my students for an hour and 45 minutes. So Kyle, thinking about that, where are the entry points for a classroom teacher? You, re- you mentioned kind of the low stakes, talking about you know the best cereal at nighttime. Mm-hmm. So what are those entry points that teachers can kind of start this conversation with? Well, I, th- let's, let, I'll just like, let's pause for a moment over the cereal and the cereal example and and what makes it particularly effective this is something that i do in all of my classes and i think i learned it because i went to a small liberal arts university where the classroom was composed of people that you knew and trusted and you could talk with your professors and they knew you and you knew them now i'm at a university with north of 100,000 students and we're all masked and we're all in social distance. And how do you manufacture trust? How do you create a conditions where students are willing to take risks? And so the tactic that you know we've taken to this point is to ask questions that tell you that tell us something about ourselves, but not necessarily in a way that make made someone feel compromised or whatever the case may be. So, you know, Mia, you found this when we, we did this as an exercise, no one was reluctant. I think there was maybe one student the entire day who was like, yeah, I don't want to talk about cereal. For the most part, people are actually pretty excited to talk about, it. but you can do that in a variety of different ways. You can say, um, like one, one of the things, I think we did this later in the day, Don, when, the, when we were kind of played, the cereal game was played out, we said, give us a hot take on a non-controversial topic which was so funny which was really funny you know i had a a student she's going to kill me for repeating this in in public but but i have i had a student this semester who i absolutely adore she's going to be a future educator and she 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 says my hot take uh, on a non-controversial topic is i think that you should have to drink a large cold glass of milk with every steak and the (laughs) class just i mean it, it was it just released joy in the class and it wasn't you know she i think she was feeling a little bit self-conscious about it but it wasn't anything that was so tightly bound to her identity where she felt like she was getting called out or anything and we still had conversations about that later on we would talk about you know what is something you're looking forward to what is something you're hopeful about or any anything like that so that's part of it you have to establish trust because anytime you take an open stance it's a bit of a risk and i think that's the point of don's comment earlier that sometimes it can be scary for teachers 
to teach listening or to take on these harder topics because it's risky. And I think we need to just affirm that as a, a reality. Um, but wouldn't you say, Kyle, of, I hate to interrupt you right now, but wouldn't you say you've done this in your college classes and not to toot the horn of my Laguna Beach High School students, but wouldn't you say that the activity that you conducted in my class went about the same as it goes in your college classes? Yeah, I mean, I, we, but we did it with the Laguna leadership and it went the same there, too. I mean, it scales really well. But I, mean, I just, point, yeah, so I guess my point is the students are ready for this. Yeah, they're absolutely ready for it. I think it's just a matter of trying to create that baseline of trust where people can, and, and remember that the point of the serial game activity is that it's going to elicit differences in opinion. And the turn of that exercise is to say, in effect, you can hear differences in perspective without feeling threatened by them. That's the main purpose of the exercise. And that should be the kind of first eye-opening step that really cuts across how we interact with one another on a regular basis. You heard it in Mia's description of having the conflict with her, with her friend or family member who was basically trying to help her out and say like, time to get up, like let's get going. You heard a difference in perspective as a threat and yet we can hear differences in perspective without feeling threatened by them all the time. So it's a matter of maybe establishing that as a baseline and you can do that in a variety of different ways. Um, I think I the think, suspension, Kyle, is really important here to, to, sorry to interrupt for a second, but the suspension is really key because you can say, I like a, a certain cereal and, and somebody else is gonna laugh at you and say, no, I like this one. But if you say, I think white people think do this, or I think white people believe this. You don't have the same kind of uh, sort of jokey freedom um, atmosphere in the classroom. So I think the suspension is really key when you turn to the difficult topics. So that if you establish with the serial thing that you can listen uh, to different ideas, but then when you get to the different topics, really bring the suspension in so that one of the activities I do is, is uh, I'll say, okay, I'm going to give you a word and I want you to call out the first thing that comes to mind and I'll give them white and then they'll you know there's this dead silence and I'll say why aren't you speaking have you never heard the word white before and they'll go no of course we haven't so well what's the first thing that comes to mind there's no right or wrong here and I'll get things like pure wedding dress bread um, racial category uh, golf clubs and then they start getting all these will fill the board and suddenly there's this sense of, I'll say, do you guys believe all of this? And they'll say, no, of course not. I'll say, where does it come from? And they'll go, you know, well, it's it's out there. And that's right, it's in the discourses that are out there, whether, you know, they're social or church or you know, whatever. Um, but the point is, I'm not asking the individual students to make a stance about whiteness. I'm asking them to talk with me about how the word white functions. And then we turn to the board and we categorize and different kind of functions that white has, right? And they'll, they're more open to thinking about questions of race and things like that when they're not on this, they're not being put on the spot to say, this is what I believe. It's more like, here's how race functions in our culture in a different way. It codes things in certain ways. What's that all about? Where did that come from? What, who would, why would we perpetuate this, you know? And so if you have those kind of questions, do I want them to go away and reflect on what they think about whiteness? Of course I do. Uh, can we have that discussion later in class? Yes, but I think that the, the, one of the keys of rhetorical listening is not just recognizing perspective, but creating structures in the classroom that allow you to build in the suspension so that the students feel safe enough to have those more difficult conversations. Yeah. And Chris and I talk about this together all the time. We are obviously, we research together, but we also are administrators in the department that Chris runs. And the key component of suspension, and you can hear how Chris is building it into the structure of that, that discussion, what do, how does whiteness signify, is resisting the urge to graft motives or intentions onto people as a matter of practice or as a first step. So. You know, Jason, you asked earlier, like, how do you how do you implement this? You know, I have three little girls. I've got twin nine-year-olds and a six-year-old turning seven next week. And one of the things that we consistently find over and over in their disagreements has less to do with how to manage the disagreements as you meant to do this to me. And so as parents, we're constantly pulling them back from that space and saying, okay, how do you know that 
Leah, Zadie, Gwendolyn meant to do that to you? And they don't typically have an answer to the question and say, well, let's suspend that for a moment and let's talk about what happened. Let's talk about how to find potential resolutions to the differences in perspective where you feel like you're heard and your sister feels like she's heard and let's move forward in good faith. But that instinct to say, you meant to do this or I know why you're doing X, Y, or Z is the absolute antagonist to the kind of suspension that Chris is describing and creating structural moments like that where you can say, let's talk about how the term whiteness signifies is a way of kind of getting around that problem. But I think, Kyle, I, as I'm listening to the both of you, I read an article a while ago, are we teaching students to argue too much? And it was about the argumentative essay because that's a huge mm-hmm. focus in the standards. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, starts in junior high and, and we, we just drill it to death. And we're asking students to pick a side constantly. Mm-hmm. And students will say, well, what, wisely they say, well, what if I don't agree with either side? And we say, just pick a side, you know, which is a dangerous thing to do. And as I'm listening to Krista and forgive the simplistic analogy, but it's almost like math. Like we need to start at the simple addition of numbers before we can get to the calculus where we talk about white privilege. You know what I'm saying? We have to, I feel like that discussion is safe and I feel we could have that discussion. And as we continue to think about whiteness, then we can graduate to the bigger discussion. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think that kind of sequential learning is important. And and if you start teaching rhetorical listening as a, a concept and a tactic at the beginning of the semester, and then work sequentially so that you're adding more of the, the tactics in, but also so that you're building toward the more difficult topics. Right. And I think I agree with you 100%. Nothing drives me any crazier than argument being defined as a thesis essay that here's what I believe and why. It's like you put a kid in a bubble and say, okay, spout. And, you know, who's the audience? And how are you going to choose your words based on that audience? And uh, um, who can talk about this and who can't? Right. Um, there's just so many contextual factors that I think complicate argument. And uh, I think one of the uh, biggest problems you also identified is this um, two sidedness. We talk about this in our introduction because it usually turns into an I'm right, you're wrong kind of argument. Right. Because it's usually refute or prove. And then we say the qualify is the more difficult essay. You probably shouldn't do that, which in actuality is what they ought to be doing. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, Mia, would you say that's kind of been overemphasized in your education? Just pick a side or? Yeah, I feel like with a lot of situations, there's like some things do apply, but some things don't. And it's kind of hard to like pick a side and stick to it, especially when you do research and find out new things about it. Like you want to add those different points into it, kind of basically and add it to your, but you have that structure that you have to follow so it's kind of hard to kind of mend it a little bit when you have a grade to worry about but i love what you just said because the more research you do the more you the more nuanced an issue becomes i mean you just said that Mm -hmm. which is that's what we want right we want students to research see all the different points that are out there and continue to think about it not make a decision Well, and Mia, the other thing that you hit dead on the head, and it's my pet peeve, is that the structure is meant to stand in for your voice, meaning your job is not to investigate a problem and propose a solution based on the complex array of factors that are, you know, may evolve even as you're investigating them. It's just simply apply a structure and demonstrate that you know how the structure works. And so Don, you, you open this kind of conversation by saying, are we argue, are we teaching our kids to argue too much? That's, I, I don't think that it's a matter of too much or too little. I think it's how well right. are we yeah. teaching students to argue and how, you know, my, my dissertation advisor, uh, someone who I just, I revere and, and love very much always used to say to me that, you know, the best writers and the best arguers watch themselves as they engage in the work and what these structures do. It's not that we don't, we were at Chris or I would ever advocate for arguing in an unstructured matter or that conventions don't matter or that situations don't matter. All of those things absolutely matter. But when we rely over rely on the structure, we cede our own agency and our ability to adapt to the problem as such. 
and it overburdens the structure in a way that outpaces, like it, it just overgeneralizes the problem and creates conflict within itself. So my advice, Mia, uh, you're going to go to college. You're so bright. Uh, you know, when you come to my first year writing program at ASU or wherever you happen to go, uh, just remember this. We, we, I tell talk to my own students like this as well is that remember like writing and arguing is about finding a problem that's relevant to you and to negotiate that problem with as much richness and thought and care as possible. Mm -hmm. And as you engage that work, it's, it's going to evolve. Your perspective is going to change. As you listen to those perspectives that are different than your own, you you're going to adapt and change and be convinced by different forms of evidence. And you might need a completely different structure Mm -hmm. and that's good. That means you're learning. That doesn't mean you're failing there was a teacher that was really adept at at navigating these conversations. She was our APOSH teacher and she lives in Malta now, but she always said that her job was to keep everyone in the room. And I thought that was a really good point because you don't want people to get mad and walk out because then you've lost them, you know? So it's our job as listeners to keep everyone talking and in the room and feeling safe. I don't know. Go ahead, Krista. You were going to say something. No, that that's uh, an excellent point. The only thing I was going to add was sometimes multiple. I mean, we should always listen for multiple perspectives because it makes us wiser about a subject, and we can position ourselves then where we we need to position ourselves um, with a greater awareness. But sometimes the other perspectives are not good ones. Sometimes you have to assiduously argue against them. It's what I tell my students: um, uh, you don't not listen to somebody because you disagree with them. You listen to someone you disagree with to better understand them, but sometimes to figure out how to deal with them. Like the CIA will listen to ch- chatter on the web about uh, from terrorists. It's not because they want to just understand the terrorists. They want to understand the terrorists and then act so as to prevent any kind of uh, attack, right? Doesn't mean that the listening um, is somehow authorizing or sanctioning the terrorist talk. It's just necessary to know what's going on so that we can you know, make better decisions for how to live in the world. And and I think that's important, too, because sometimes, especially when you're talking about race or controversial topics, um, some things are going to come up that are not comfortable and that uh, um, um, are going to, you know, insult people. And so one of the things we need to say at the very beginning is not just the suspension, but we're here to learn, right? And uh, just because we're studying something doesn't mean we're promoting it. That's a good point. I think what you're mentioning there, Chris, is this trust that has to happen in in that yeah. space. And uh, you know, to kind of bring it full circle back to the work that we're trying to do in our district is really build relationships and build that trust in the classroom so that you can have these types of conversations and have an open dialogue. And I also recognize, again, thinking about, you know, forcing students to take positions on and, and justify those positions when they might recognize that maybe their position somewhere in the middle. Um, you know, uh, it's a good lesson for us, Mia, and I'm hopeful that we as staff and, and uh, adults can start to become a little more comfortable with listening to, you know, the students on the other end here. And um, I think, again, there needs to be a trust factor and a respect factor. So, um when you think about that, Don, in terms of implications for trust and respect, and you know, um, how do you how do you navigate that in your classroom? I mean, you're an expert at it, and um, all kids will will talk about your class, whether they have you or not, um, about kind of the the environment that you create. Um, so, talk about the steps that you take in your classroom to kind of open that up. I I want students to not be afraid of what they might produce. And as an an educator, I'm open to whatever is interesting to them. And I found that that is more interesting to me. Reading the same paper over and over again 80 times is not interesting to me. If the students are writing from the perspective of what is interesting to them, then it's so much more joyful for me. And I, I have the good fortune of teaching creative writing, so nobody's ode is the same, right? Um, but I'm learning that with my 10 owners because they're writing an essay right now about the picture of Dorian Gray. And I, I've given them a prompt, but I've also opened it up to, if you feel compelled to write about something else in the novel that is interesting to you, go for it. Which is scary for some educators. How am I gonna grade it? What's the rubric? I don't know. 
let's just let them go and and see what they produce take risks and they're terrified right now because they they want to get the a and i'm not afraid they're going to be just fine if they're writing from if they're writing about something they're interested in and they're really digging into the novel and pulling out stuff that they feel supports whatever they're writing about i think that's great and they're going to do fine and so not i'm not afraid to let them go because I think that's where the beauty is, is letting you, you're incredible human beings who are so smart. Let's see what they come up with. I think it's important too to think about uh, a rubric can produce, you know, can uh, be structured so that it can be used to grade a whole bunch of different topics. Right. Because instead of say, making it content specific, you can say uh, demonstrates evidence of uh, or demonstrates awareness of multiple perspectives. They could talk about anything in Dorian mm-hmm. Gray and bring that in. So it's a matter of, I think, constructing the rubric, you know, you don't have to leave the rubric off, but you can construct the rubric in such a way that it, it invites multiple responses. And that would have been terrifying to me before I taught creative writing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So now that I've taught creative writing, I've been away from this level for a while and I'm coming back to it. I just see my fearlessness in just the stuff that, the students are producing and allowing them to do to produce stuff that's interesting to them talk about stuff that's interesting to them so don talked a little bit about her the way she kind of evolved around this topic so kyle if you were to give advice to a parent or a teacher about you know where to start around learning around rhetorical listening you know what would you what would you tell them well i i think that um part of the work that chris and i are doing uh, right now in developing a listening capacity survey that is accessible not just to academics but to the wider public is kind of that initial step. It's it's an entry point as Mia was demonstrating once you have a hold of the nine capacities and you identify where you might lean in as a listener, that's an entry point for having conversations with others. And then you can reflect on conversations that you may or may not have had in the past and say, okay, well, maybe our conflict is not because we don't like each other. Maybe it's because we're listening in different ways. And when we present evidence, we're presenting as if we're presenting it to ourselves and not necessarily to an audience that is different than our own. So, you know, Chris and I are actively working on this survey and, and it's, it's making pretty significant headway and it should be available here within the next couple of months or so. So I think that that's, you know, that's not like a product plug. It's simply a matter of saying that this is such new research that having that initial assessment that's meant for people to identify what they do well is an important first step and independent of that i think you know having that conversation with with your children uh and saying when you when you when i listen what do you hear me doing well when you listen this is what i hear you doing well so really taking that kind of affirmation uh, based orientation i think is is the important first step but then having conversations about it and trying to recognize that there are different ways of listening and that having disagreements does not necessarily need to lead into any type of threat um, to be pragmatic and conscious and and really meticulous about moving forward saying all right this is the difference in perspective i don't need to feel threatened by a perspective that is different than our own but we do need to resolve this particular conflict in order to move forward in good faith so that you, I get out what I need to get out of it and you get out what you need to get out of it. Um, but having those kinds of active conversations where you're consciously and consciously thinking about how you listen and how to move forward in good faith, I think is a good first step. And, and then, you know, Chris and I wrote this book, the rhetorical listening in action. It's, it's coming out with a, you know, kind of a quasi academic press, but we've written it in a way that it's meant to be accessible to people and it should be out Chris what in the next couple of months or so in March um so encourage people like if you want to learn more about rhetorical listening you can you can definitely pick up Chris's book um it's an exceptional I mean it's it's one of the most decorated books in our field's history but it's also written for an academic audience uh, with an academic audience in mind this particular book that we've written together is meant to be far more accessible and it uses you know much more kind of everyday examples to kind of help carry people through. Um, and then if you, I guess what I would say, which, what, which is what I always say is uh, we are not inaccessible people and this is something that we care uh, very much about. So we're at ASU in the English department. If you want to talk about rhetorical listening, 
come to, come find us, send us an email, you know, um, we'll be happy to cut, to talk with you, to correspond, to, you know, come out. And I'm, I, I'm never going to turn down an opportunity to come out to Laguna beach and visit with your brilliant Yay. students and your exceptional staff. I know Chris, Chris, you may want to head out that way as well. It's pretty gorgeous. Uh, and it's great food out there as well. So nothing to complain about. Um, but if you're interested, you know, get proactive about it. We'll, we'll help you out. Um, and, and there's some stuff coming down the pipe that should make it a, the, the jump toward educated much, much easier. So Mia, as a student, what do you think we could do better in this area? What, what areas or opportunities from your perspective? You're a senior. Yes. And you're, you're making the next big leap. But as you reflect back on your experience here in the district, you say, we could do this better. Uh, around this topic don't hold back go for it well covid does have a big impact on how everyone was pretty much affected with um listening and everything and i know that it has been hard on a lot of teachers and everything and i just like sometimes i don't feel quite listened to when it comes to what I'm personally going through and everything, because I know everybody's circumstance is different. And I don't think some teachers at our school understand that. Um, because personally, I I don't have the best home life and everything, and I have to work a lot, and I just have a lot of things going on, but then there's a classmate right next to me that's just riding the wave and having the best senior year that they could ever have, and it's just, it's hard to be like compared to the student and treated exactly the same because I'm going through something different. And I think all teachers should open up and about them. Like obviously teachers are allowed to keep a lot of things to themselves, but if teachers open up and give that nice, comfortable environment to students, students will open up and email even and like talk to you in private and want to tell you their circumstances to have you have a better grasp on everything because I know a lot of my friends that are going through a lot of hard things and they just don't feel like they have anybody at school to really talk to. So. I hope we all heard that. It's an opportunity for us, uh, I think, as uh, parents and adults um, to make sure that we're doing our part to listen to our students and their needs. And um, I continue to uh, have hope that we uh, will continue on this journey. And we have partners with Chris and Kyle that I believe are going to help us continue that work and um, continue to make it a better place for students. And so I appreciate your honesty, Mia. And I, um, I know we're not perfect, but we can always strive to be better. And so um, with that, I will close down this uh, podcast. And I appreciate uh, Dr. Jensen, Dr. Ratcliffe, Don Honeycutt, Mia LePage. It's been an amazing opportunity for us to sit down and, and discuss this topic. There's a lot more learning I know that we need to do. Um, but I, again, thank everybody for their time, and I wish you all a very nice winter break. Thank you for listening to Episode 9 of Inside LBUSD. If you have any podcast questions or suggestions, we encourage you to visit lbusd.org podcast and let us know your thoughts. And happy holidays to everyone. We hope you have a wonderful winter break, and we look forward to seeing everyone again in January.